A reading from Luke 22, verses 31 through 38. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you uh, for your word, for the gift that it is to us, that Lord it never fails, and it is living and active, and Lord, you speak to us through it. So, Lord, would you do just that this morning? Lord, would you show us, as we just sung, would you show us how by your mercy you can wash us as sinners clean? It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. All right. Um, I don't know about you, but one of my biggest fears in life is of being exposed, being exposed as incompetent um, or a failure, and for everyone to know and think that that's true. And ironically, there were a number of times when I was preparing for this sermon, which is on failure, if you haven't picked that up yet, um, that I realized that I was being motivated out of a fear of failure, even as I was preparing this sermon on it. Um, Because I was finding myself tempted to still try and prove to you guys, to a relatively new church, and staff that I'm competent, that I'm good at what I've been hired to do. And not just prove that to you guys, but actually prove it to myself as well. And so the nightmare scenario here would be to get up here and then just be completely incoherent um, for you to just be completely lost, or for me to even worse, say something that's just completely wrong. Um, So in other words, to fail, and to fail publicly. And while I was kind of wrestling with that, I also realized that I think I'm more often afraid of that kind of failure, the failure of what I'm able to do, how I perform, than I am of like a moral failure, a sinful failure, a failure of character, a failure to love, a failure to follow Christ's commands. And if you can relate to any of that, if you're anything like me, uh, I bet you're glad that you weren't around when some of these stories in the Bible were taking place so that they can't be about you. Um, but unfortunately for Peter, he was around, and we get to read his colossal failures 2,000 years later and still be talking about them, Um, and so that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at today this passage where Peter is told by Jesus that he's about to fail, and Peter categorically denies that that could ever happen, but many of us know how that story goes. And I don't, I don't know how to rank failures, uh, but I would say Peter's has to be up there with some of the worst. 
to be a leader among the disciples, to be the first one called by Jesus, to be the first one that Jesus, or to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, to say, Lord, I'll go with you even to death. But then just a couple hours later, he denies him three times. So this is not your, your average, everyday sort of failure. This is, this is pretty brutal. Um, and again, we're talking about this 2,000 years later. Can you imagine if this was your story? That if we were listening to a sermon on Ben Melcher's denial of Jesus 2,000 years from now, like how humiliating is that? Well, I've got uh, some good news and some bad news. The bad news is that this story, whether you realize it or not, is much more similar to your own than you may think, this story of repeated failure. But the good news and kind of the crazy news is I can tell you there's one person who's actually really glad that we're still talking about this 2,000 years later, and that's Peter. So how could this be? How could this man who we'll see in a few weeks was so ashamed of his failure that when Jesus looked him in the eyes, he turned and went outside and wept by himself from the shame that he felt? How could he come to be glad that we're talking about that two millennia later? And I would say it's only through experiencing how Jesus responded to that failure, and that's with grace. And that response is going to be what we're looking at together today, and I I want to say three things that Jesus does in response to our failures. One, he prays for them. He prays for our faith in failure. Two, Jesus pays for our failures. And third, and finally, Jesus produces fruit through your failure. So first, let's look at how Jesus prays for your faith. And this is in the first section that Rachel read for us, verse 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen the brothers. So what's going on here? I think uh, it's pretty clear. Jesus knew something was going on that night. He knew that there was danger in the air. Uh, If you remember from the beginning of this passage, verse 3, it says that Satan actually entered into Judas. And here we see that Satan has been asking Jesus if he can sift his disciples. So Jesus knows there's danger that night, but the disciples don't know this yet. And this ironically comes right after what Iron preached on last week, which is their debate about who is the greatest of them. And if you'll notice, uh, Jesus addresses Peter in this passage, but what you may not notice is that the you that he uses in verse 32 is actually a plural you, y'all, yens, you guys, whatever you say. Um, And he's saying Satan has demanded to have all of you, not just you, Peter, but he's talking to Peter. He's demanded to have all of you. And so Satan is after all of the disciples, but Jesus is addressing Peter specifically. Verse 32, that you goes from plural to singular. And he says, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen the brothers. So why, why do you think Jesus was addressing Peter specifically? if it was all of the disciples that Satan was after. Maybe it was because he was the strongest and he was the leading disciple after all. 
the first one Jesus called to be a disciple. Maybe it's because he was the guy, you know? Or maybe it was actually because he was the weakest and the most prone to failure given his pride and his arrogance. But whatever the reason was, uh, take a look at what Peter's response was. Verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So in other words, not me, surely not. I'm Peter, remember? But he was completely blinded by his pride. And he thought that he, if anybody, was untouchable. And maybe you've been sitting there in your seat this morning thinking, I'm doing pretty great. I'm not that much of a failure. Uh, I'm doing pretty well for myself. Thank you very much. Let me tell you this. That's exactly where Satan wants you to be. A few months ago, we talked about this idea of that the, the greatest hindrances to our relationship with Jesus is not our weaknesses. It's actually our strengths, what we think we're good at, where we think we're okay. 2 Corinthians 12.10 says that when I am weak, then I am strong. And I think the opposite is true as well. That when you think you're strong, that's actually when you're weak, when you're most prone to the devil's attack. So friends, where, where do you think you're untouchable? Do you realize how much Satan is ravenous for your soul? He wants to sift you like wheat. And the worst thing that you can do is to think that surely you are okay because you've got everything under control. You know, the Bible is full of examples of stories that show the danger of that mentality. We just talked about David and his failure with Bathsheba earlier in the service. You may know the story of Moses who led God's people so faithfully for so long, but eventually he thought he got it all figured out and he started doing what he wanted to do. Or much more recently, and, and tragically, you may know the story of Ravi Zacharias, this incredible man, this world-renowned um, apologist and Christian thought leader, who after he died, it was revealed that he had a really broken, um, hidden life, that he had assaulted a number of women. Um, I, I bet he never thought he'd get to that place. And so these stories, these sobering stories, show us that you can be as close as possible to Jesus. The disciples are sitting right there with him. But that doesn't stop Satan from trying to get what he thinks is his. But notice what Jesus did and he didn't pray for. It's a really simple line. He says, Peter, I've prayed that your faith may not fail. He didn't pray that Peter wouldn't fail. He didn't pray that he wouldn't be tempted in the first place. He simply prayed that his faith would not fail. There's a, a famous uh, preacher by the name of Charles Spurgeon, who when he preached on this passage once said that the point of Satan's chief attack on a believer is his faith. We are engrafted into Christ by faith, and faith is the point of contact between the believing soul and the living Christ. If, therefore, Satan could manage to cut through the graft just there, then he would defeat the Savior's work most completely. Jesus simply prayed that his faith would not fail, because that's all he needed. And Jesus prays the same prayer for us 
all of us that are in him today. Romans 8 says that Christ who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding or praying for us. And so friends, I want you to know he's praying for your anxiety, that in your fear and your restlessness, that you won't stop trusting in his goodness. He's praying about your strained relationships, that in your estrangement, you won't stop trusting in his love. He is praying about your wandering into sin, that you will never stop trusting in his forgiveness, but instead you will desire the better way that he offers through it. Jesus prays for everything that we need, and you can rest assured that those prayers are answered every single time. And so our faith is sustained through Jesus' prayers, but that faith would not exist. Those prayers would not hold the same power that they do apart from his death on the cross and his defeat of sin and death in the resurrection. Which leads me to my second point, that Jesus pays for our failures. And if you'll turn and look at uh, verse 35, if you've, if you've read this before, or if you were paying attention when Rachel was leading it, you, you may be a little confused by it. Like, what's, what's going on here? Why is this related to what we're talking about? Why are they talking about swords? Like, this just is weird. I don't know what to do with this. Um, and it may also look familiar to some of you, some of the instructions Jesus gives, because earlier in Luke, in chapters 9 and 10, he tells the disciples to go out and to take nothing with them, because all that they needed would be provided. But here he's saying, hey, remember that time? Well, now I'm asking you to bring a couple other things, including a sword. Um, so what, what's going on with the swords? Why is he talking about swords this time? This doesn't really sound like anything else Jesus ever said or did. And what I would encourage you guys to do, whenever a passage is unclear, the best thing you can do is look to the rest of Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. And if you read everything that happens after this point, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you'll see that God's people never incite violence. There's lots and lots of violence done to them, but they're never the ones doing violence. So, so what's going on here? And you may also know what happens later that night when Peter takes one of these swords and he cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers arresting Jesus. I would imagine in that moment, Peter is probably, th saying, sorry, probably thinking something along the lines of, I'll show Jesus what's up. Like, I'm, I'm going to cut this guy's ears off. But I don't know why. He's either really bad with a sword or... Um, I don't know what, what the deal was there, but he's, I would imagine he's trying to prove himself. He's like, there's no way I'm going to deny Jesus. I'll show him. But right after Peter cuts the soldier's ear off, Jesus rebukes him, and he heals that man. And so Peter here chose the wrong weapon. Even though Jesus had just been talking about swords, he was missing something. He chose this literal sword, relying on his own doing, instead of relying and trusting on his Savior, who was right there, and resting in his strength, which he didn't realize at the time, but he was showing it in his gentleness and his humility. And for his whole time on earth, Jesus made it abundantly clear that his kingdom wasn't going to come like people thought it would. It wasn't going to come through violence. It wasn't going to come through upending 
institutions and governments. He didn't come to take down Rome. And so Jesus this night, he was speaking metaphorically to his disciples. He was telling them, hey, guess what? This time's going to be different. Last time, there wasn't as much tumult going on. You were at home. People knew you. They knew me, and they provided. But I'm about to send you out to the ends of the earth where people aren't going to know you. They're not going to want you, and you're going to need to prepare for that. But the, the disciples take it quite literally, and they say kind of laughably, look, we have two swords. Cool. Um, and Jesus says, that's enough. And again, this is another kind of confusing part. What, how could that possibly be enough? That would be like me telling somebody to go take over the White House and that the two pistols they and their buddy have are going to be enough to do so. Like it's, it's a laughable thing to say, hey, we have two swords. That's enough. Instead, he was saying, guys, that's enough. No more talk of swords. You're missing the point. You don't get it. And you won't yet, not until it happens. And here's the point that they missed, is that Jesus had come to die. And as we see in verse 37, to be counted among the transgressors. That's the point. And this doesn't just mean that he was going to be called a sinner. And if, if you don't know, this is a direct quote from Isaiah 53, which is a song of the suffering servant, which was uh, a, predict, or a prophecy about the coming Messiah, how he would come to suffer and die. And Isaiah 53, 12 says that he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So again, this doesn't just mean that we call Jesus a sinner. It actually means that he became a sinner for us. In order to satisfy God's wrath and justice on our failures, Jesus died as a liar, as a thief, as an adulterer, as a lazy, prideful sinner. He who had no sin became sin for us, for our failures. And do you know what this passage doesn't say? It doesn't say that you and I are counted among the sinners. Only Christ. When you are in Christ, he takes your place. And when we look to the cross, when we're in Christ, we see our Savior saying that I'm taking all of your failures. I'm taking them. Every place where you're inadequate, I'm taking that too. Where you don't measure up to the world's or my standards because you have all fallen short and I'm going to take it upon myself so that you won't be counted among them. You won't be counted among the failures. Instead, I'm going to call you my friend. You will be counted as a son and daughter of the king, my brothers and sisters and co-heirs. And so friends, it's on the cross where we see that the one who never failed died for the failures. It's on the, Christ, on the cross where Jesus paid the price that we all deserve so that you and I, by faith, can have access to a love that never fails. So, so what do you have to do for that? How do you get that? We're going to go back a little bit. Verse 32, Jesus tells Peter, when you turn, 
turn. Just one thing, turn. It's this language of repentance. It's turning away from something. It's turning away from yourself. It's turning away from your failures and even the things that you think are your successes. It's turning from those things and turning instead to your Father who is ready and willing to accept you with open arms. And when you turn, he says, strengthen the brothers. Which leads me to this third point, that Jesus produces fruit through our failures. I think for a lot of us, whenever we fail, we feel like it's the end, like the world is coming crashing down around us. There's no hope for our future. We've messed up our one chance. We don't really have the capability to to think past that. We're just so caught up in the moment. We don't have any hope or vision for the future. But Jesus does. With Jesus, your failures are not final. He has a hope and a vision for them. And a lot of times that's just the very beginning of his great work that he does in you. In verse 33, Peter seems to almost get it. He says, I'm willing to die for you. He seems to get like, hey, this is going to be hard to follow Jesus, that it might require suffering at times. But his problem in that moment was his confidence was misplaced. His confidence was a self-confidence, and it wasn't yet fully in Christ. But in the sweet irony, though, Peter would later be imprisoned and killed for the sake of the gospel. But at that moment, he wasn't ready for either. So how did Peter become ready? What changed? This guy whose faith was so weak that just a few hours later, he denies Jesus three times. And this is the same guy that would later die the death of a martyr. What changed? Like, that doesn't just happen. Certainly not overnight. So, so what was it? Was it some great piece of advice that one of the other disciples or even Jesus gave him? Was it shame? Do you think it was his shame that motivated him to just buckle up and be better? Was it Jesus just like magically instilling this courage in him? Kind of like what the, uh, the lion asked for in the Wizard of Oz. Like, give me courage. No, it, it, it wasn't any of these things. It was through his experience of Christ's grace and forgiveness for him that his life was transformed. And in fact, Peter's failures brought him closer to Jesus than his successes ever could. There's a guy named Dallas Willard who once said that when Jesus knew Peter would deny him, he didn't just fix him so that he wouldn't do the terrible thing. He surely could have done that. But it would not have advanced Peter toward being the person he needed to become. So Jesus said to Peter, with sadness perhaps, but with great confidence in the Father, I have requested concerning you that your faith might not die. And when you have straightened up, uphold the brothers. And so friends, what we see here is that when you experience Jesus' grace and forgiveness after failure, it's utterly life-changing. And when you know this, you'll see that the prerequisite, the one thing Christ asks in order to follow him, is not to convince him or anybody else that you're not a failure, that you've got it all figured out, 
but it's seeing that you are a failure. But resting in the promise that Jesus died for failures and that his love will never fail you. That's the one thing he asks. And another thing I hope you see is that no matter how many times you fail, when you're in Christ, he will still use you. That's what he does. He uses failures to advance his kingdom. I mean, how backwards is it that Peter, this guy who openly denied Jesus three times, would be the one that Jesus called to strengthen everyone else and to lead them in his absence? Like, he's probably the last person I would have picked. Like, this is laughable. But as far as redemption stories go, Peter's is is one of my favorites. If you know some of the rest of his story, it's really incredible to see all that Christ did in his life. I think many of us may know of the breakfast on the beach where Jesus, after his resurrection, comes and restores Peter three times. But even that's not the end. In the book of Acts, we see in chapter 4 that after Peter heals a man, he's sent to the Sanhedrin, this council of of religious leaders who, guess what? Most of them were the same people who just sentenced Jesus to death just a few months before, and he's put on trial before them, and he's a completely different man. He says, that man that was just healed, it was Jesus, the man you killed, that healed him, and he's alive, and I can't help but talk about it. I can't help but talk about what I've seen. This is just like two or three months later. This doesn't happen. And then later in Acts chapter 12, he goes to prison for the sake of the gospel. And then we read in church history that he died a martyr's death, maybe even crucifixion. People do not change like this, apart from the transforming power of God's grace and mercy in their life through failure. And this is important. This is what I want you to see is that God chose to use Peter not because of his strength, not even despite his strength, or sorry, despite his failures, but actually because of his failures. That's what qualified him, was he was a failure. And Peter was the one Christ chose to carry this message of grace and mercy because Peter was the one who had directly experienced it. There, there are four Gospels, if you don't know that, and one of the other ones, the Gospel of John, has a bit, little bit longer, uh, it's called a discourse um, from Jesus on the night of the Lord's Supper. And one of the the famous passages in that stretch is is John 15, where he says, I'm the true vine, and you are the branches. And the very first two verses in that, that passage says that I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So what this is saying is, The Lord prunes us through our failures. He cuts off the things that don't need to be there so that we can bear more fruit, so that we can bear fruit for his kingdom. I remember the the first time that I really experienced that to be true was in college. My my sister and I are a grade apart. Uh, She's a, a grade older than me. And as the only girl in a family of five brothers, she was naturally inclined to hang out with guys a little bit more than than other girls. And because we were close in age, that often meant hanging out with me and my friends, which was okay at times and frustrating at others. But it got super frustrating whenever she would start to date them. 
and suddenly they were way less interested in me. Uh, but then the worst was when they would inevitably break up, and then things just were awkward. I was like, this is so annoying. And it happened several times. Um, and I remember one time that it happened, and I was just done. I was like, this is it. I am so frustrated. I am angry, and I'm going to let her know. And I remember we were in this argument, and I, I looked her in the eyes, and I literally said, why can't you make your own friends? Like, why do you have to have my friends? Why can't you just let me have my own life? Like, go make your own friends. These are mine. And I remember just this look of sheer pain and sadness and hurt on her face. And by God's grace, I knew, like, I've messed this up big time. It was really the first time that I felt this, like, cut at my heart, this conviction of what have I just done? I've just given words of death to my sister instead of words of life and love. And thankfully, she's much more gracious and compassionate than I am. And I, again, by God's grace, was convicted, and I, I apologized. And she hugged me. And she said, I forgive you. I love you. I want to be a part of your life. And from that moment on, she and I had butted heads all growing up. But that moment changed our relationship forever. And now she's the one... I talk to more than anybody else, and vice versa in our family. So the Lord took that moment of utter failure on my part and has produced the sweetest fruit from it. And I'm so grateful. I wish I hadn't said it, but I did. And, and thankfully, the Lord has shown me the beauty that has come from that. And so what, what this passage tells us is that your failure is not final. God is in the business of restoring failures. And no one knows how to say that better than the one who's experienced it. And so for some of you this morning, you may still be sitting there thinking, you know, I don't really need Jesus. My life is pretty good. Everything's going great. I'm all right. But let me challenge you again with this. That is exactly where Satan wants you to be. To think that you've got everything under control. You know, what happens when those things that are going well start to crumble? What happens if your startup fails? You lose a friend or a spouse or even a child to cancer? What happens if you don't get into Stanford? What then? What will you do when things around you start to fail? What this passage shows us is that there is grace for you in Christ Jesus, grace for all who turn to him. And maybe you're starting to think about doing that for the first time. And if that's you, then I urge you to throw yourself upon him. Throw yourself upon his grace and mercy. Don't let Satan squash out that even tiniest sliver of faith that may be stirring in you. But for others of you, I think your spiritual life has often been about performance. This is what I have to do. And in fact, you might even be here this morning because of that. It's like, I have to go to church for Jesus to love me. Maybe if I start giving a little bit more money, maybe if I start behaving better, if I stop cheating on my tests at school, if I, I stop looking at those websites, maybe then he'll accept me. But that's not how it works. 
Salvation is a free gift, but it's a gift paid for with a great price. And there's no way you can earn it. And for those of you that are in Christ, but may be haunted by something in your past, some thing that you did or didn't do, some terrible moment of failure, whatever that may be, the cross wipes it out. The cross says that the greatest failures, the greatest suffering can actually be a way that God is doing something beautiful. Have you ever thought this thought of, because I can't think of any good reason why X would happen, there can't be any reason why X, why God would let X happen? I'd imagine the people at the foot of the cross thought that same thing when they looked at the the man that they loved dying on the cross, they probably thought there's no way good can come from this. And yet that greatest moment of evil that the world has ever seen has become the greatest moment of good that the world has ever seen. Because of the cross, there's always hope because Jesus has secured your future. He has a vision for your future. And so if that's you this morning, I want you to ask yourself, What is the Father's posture towards you right now? What is he saying to you? If he's saying anything other than, I love you, I'm pleased with you, I'm proud of you, you are mine, and I am yours. If he's saying anything other than that, then you don't yet understand God's mercy and grace and forgiveness for you, a failure. So you can put down your performance because Christ has already performed for you. You don't need to pretend that you're more spiritual than you actually are. You don't need to tell everybody how great you are. You don't have to be afraid of failure because Jesus never fails you. The only thing you have to do is confess your failure and turn and see that you have immeasurable and unfailing love and forgiveness waiting for you in Christ Jesus, and rejoice that he is transforming your failures into fruit. So take heart, my friends. Jesus is praying for you even now, praying that your faith in him, the savior of liars, cheaters, thieves, gossips, addicts, workaholics, the savior of failures will never fail. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that, Lord, your love never fails. That, Lord, you uh, became sin on our behalf because you knew that we would fail and never stop failing. Lord, we thank you that in you we have grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption, and that, Lord, you offer life and offer it to the fullest. So, Lord, would we Uh, come to you with our failures and our successes. Would we throw them at your feet? And Lord, would you give us the victory that you have won on the cross and in the empty tomb? And may we rest in that and in your love for the rest of our lives on this earth. And we pray this all in the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen.